Well, thank you very much, Jennifer. It is indeed my pleasure to, to uh, come and address an issue that is, of course, near and dear to my uh, heart, and that's the study of the emerging Arctic security regime. When Jennifer first approached me about coming and giving a talk, particularly in the context of an ongoing art display, it, of course, got me thinking, okay, how do I talk about Arctic security in the context of art? And the thought, of course, came to me that really, to a large degree, what is happening within the Southern understanding of what's happening within the Arctic, how we have come to view it, how we've, in some instances, come to view it very differently, really is depending on the type of imagery, the type of art, the type of displays that we have. What we're seeing is a development of a large number of different narratives of how we understand a transforming Arctic. Even the science that we are basing much of our discussions in terms of trying to understand what is happening in the context of climate change, where it is really getting its true driving force, where countries such as India and China are now preparing and extensively spending large amounts of money on preparing for Arctic research, is, of course, that the type of imagery, the type of discussions, the type of manner in which we in the South are able to think about the Arctic, are now actually able to bring it back. So when we extend our definition of what is art to really understand that it is a representation of a reality that the vast majority of us are not able to experience firsthand, we can start to see some of the power behind why you cannot pick up a newspaper without seeing some article about the Arctic. Why you can't pick up a newspaper to see these different discussions, these different debates, these different narratives. Because it very much depends on the type of imaging, the type of thinking, the type of, of, of way of expressing what constitutes the Arctic. That really situates, and, and really, after I got thinking about it, after Jennifer's uh, initial approaches, really is one of, if not the driving feature in the South. Now, resource development, uh, geopolitical realities, concern about what's happening to our northern Aboriginal peoples, all of these have a factual basis that will, of course, be driving. Once again, the type of visual representation that we have becomes very significant in terms of whether or not we support, we push, whether or not we can expect to see the Chinese, the Indians, the South Koreans occurring and coming up at any real large scale. So what are the major themes? Well, really, I have four that I want to talk about in the, in the, in the next uh, half an hour or so that I have. The first one is, of course, just this increasing international debate. What is the circumpolar north going to look like? It used to be that it was pretty formidable. If you were not Inuit or had not experienced and prepared yourself basically under the tutorage of an Inuit or northern indigenous peoples, you weren't going to last very long. We discovered that the Inuit, of course, have different ways of understanding in the north. And, for example, very recently, we've just discovered that the reason why nobody got scurvy, or at least none of the Inuit ever got scurvy, whereas all the Europeans who came up, of course, poisoned themselves with faulty canned goods, the lead that, uh, that they ended up uh, probably destroying the Franklin expedition, but many others, is that their appreciation of mukluk, of whale blubber, as long as it's not cooked, turns out that it has a major source of vitamin C. 
In fact, it's their critical major source of vitamin C. Now, as soon as you cook it, like good Europeans, of course, would always do when they were exploring, you'd end up destroying all the vitamin C contents in it. So something that we see, and once again, we get into the imagery issue. And when we turn around and talk about, okay, that that's really stinks. And I mean, anyone who's ever had mukluk, who is not brought up on it, it is an acquired taste. I mean, <laughs> let, let, let's be frank here. But once again, we can see the manner in which we're understanding it. So really what we're talking about, though, is that this formidable, this, this unapproachable part that actually acts as a very important identification of what is Canada is now opening up. It's opening up in the physical context, but it's also opening up in the terms of imaginations. People are seeing possibilities in the Arctic that simply did not exist even 10 years ago. And so this is all adding into the approach that we have. The mage is a second theme that I have, which really is the focus of where my research is, is this Arctic security regime that's developing. What is it going to look like? We are hoping that it will represent the best of humanity, that it will be cooperative, it will be environmentally sensitive, we will be taking into account the interests and desires of those who have called it home since time immemorial. There are indicators that that may not be the case, that that may in fact be wishful thinking. That we may be seeing the return of the so-called great game in which nation states pursue their own interests in this and pursue it in, with very substantial military capabilities. And so it actually comes to the third point, which is how does this, how does this affect Canada? We pride ourselves on being a northern people. It's in our national anthem. Uh, we call ourselves Northerners. The reality is that we're sort of like Chile put sideways. 90% of our population lives within 200 miles of the American border. Yeah, we call ourselves Southerners, but even with climate change, or we call ourselves Northerners, but even with climate change, the type of cold weather that we are used to is starting to become a thing that the younger people are having an issue with. I was born and raised in Winnipeg, and I can tell you that in those days it was a perfect excuse when you were a teenager. Mom, I forgot to plug in the car. Uh, I'm going to have to stay over at Susie's or Betty's or whoever, unless you want to come out in the 40 below and give me a boost. And, of course, the answer was always no. You can't do that anymore because the cars start because you don't get into that deep freeze. I mean, I can't remember the last Christmas where I've had to worry about plugging in any of the vehicles. And once again, that is sort of almost traditional knowledge from a Winnipeg perspective. And then finally, tying into sort of the display, to what Jennifer wanted me to talk upon, is of course the impact of the new imagery. How do we think of it? How do we see it? What drives not only our thinking in Canada, but what drives it internationally? So when we start talking about the transformation in the Arctic, really what we're seeing is sort of this merging, this, this nexus that is very much an issue in transformation in which the Arctic is transforming on every single context. The one we all think about, the one that we have pictures of, is climate change. I've got a couple of graphics I'll show in terms of how that has basically fixated our think of the Arctic, the melting ice. Now, we can also see the polar bear. Everyone has seen Time Kazintite and other type of articles where you see the polar bear sitting on a piece of ice and it's melting or whatever. These are the type of images we have because climate change is what's really captured our attention. But by the same token, 
There has been a new development, a new search for resources in the Arctic, that even if the ice was not melting, would also be of a transformational nature. On the northern tip of Baffin Island, the Mary River or Mary River Project is promising to have the purest and largest deposit of iron ore worldwide. That's going ahead as soon as the Europeans figure out how to deal with the Euro crisis and the Americans can get their attention away from uh, uh, abortion rights, which seems to be the major focus of their election right now. And so as soon as these economies recover, the iron ore that's there will be developed. 30% of all undiscovered natural gas is in the Arctic. Probably about 13% of oil. Most of the undiscovered uranium deposits are in the north, and most of you that are getting engaged in the next little while will be doing something that older Canadians never did, and that is give or get a diamond that's Canadian. On the basis of three mines alone in Northwest Territories, we've moved from a zero diamond producer, or I should say there's three and a half, there's a small fourth one I always forget about. We've moved basically from being the zero diamond producer to either, depending how you count, the third or second largest diamond producer in the world. And we could open up a lot more mines if, in fact, we could convince all of the Indians to start giving engagement rings the same way that the beers convinced the Japanese. So, I mean, to a certain degree, you see a transformation of culture, but the economy, economics are there. And so, basically, we have this need for a multidisciplinary understanding. And that, of course, includes how we visualize the Arctic, how we see it, the populations of the north, the populations, the decision makers, and so forth. And so this is where art, really art as an imagery, is playing a critical role. And so we have this issue, though, as soon as we start thinking about these different types of imageries, does the academic discourse, the discussions, how we frame it, the type of science that goes forward, is that reflecting the change that's happening, or is it actually driving it? If we can come up with a certain image of the north, does that then situate how people think about it? Does that transform it in terms of policy action? And there's evidence amounting, I would argue, that suggests that yes, it does. And so ultimately we come to the final question. How do we imagine transformation? We have troubles enough trying to imagine something that is static. Well, if you have something that's transforming on every single front, how do you try to visualize it? One transformation I didn't mention that's very depressing, though, when you think about it, is that our generation is probably going to be the last generation that can say, I was around when indigenous northern peoples actually practiced a traditional way of life. The melting ice, the pollutants that are reaching the Arctic, and the coming economic booms that are coming mean basically, along with the globalization transformation of new electronic communication systems means that the youth of the Inuit are in a major state of flux. Most of them want to have the same type of access to iPod communications and so forth that their southern peers have. When you do that, going out on the land takes on a different meaning. We're seeing that transformed. This is why in Canada, the highest single demographic group for suicide is young Inuit males. The second highest demographic suicide rate in Canada is young Inuit women. And so we're seeing a major transformation education-wise, geopolitical, and it's very likely that the traditional way of hunting is coming to an end.
with all the good and bad that that carries. And so, once again, how do we think about it? Well, when we talk about the transformation, really there are three major drivers. The first one is climate change, and I've talked about that. The other is, of course, resource development. The north is where people are going, regardless of what happens elsewhere. But try to imagine the price of oil in Canada. If, in fact, say, for example, the Arab Spring spreads into Saudi Arabia, there are some that are suggesting that the House of Saud may, in fact, be just as vulnerable as the Libyan administration under Gaddafi. Try to imagine what we'd be paying for price of oil if, in fact, there is a long-term revolutionary action within Saudi Arabia. Because you can bet your bottom dollars it will not stay local. You know that the Americans, Brits, Iranians, all that would like to involve themselves will be there. And when that occurs, of course, what does that mean for the North? Well, it means all those resources that people only talk about right now, that is where they'll be going. And so the Arctic is, of course, being then transformed by outside forces, but again, pretty difficult to understand. And so we get this issue about the geopolitical transformation. What's happening? Well, international law is changing how we can acquire and hold ocean territory. The United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea has been transformational. It changes everything. We are only now realizing how significant it is in the north. And we're seeing arrival of new actors. The moment you have the Chinese spending more on Arctic science than probably Canada and the United States combined, you know that that is going to be changing the nature of how we understand the Arctic. And so these are all factors that are coming forward. Now, once again, this is a type of imagery. This is a type of way of visualizing what's happening in the Arctic. I submit to you is transforming how not only we think about the Arctic, but how we approach it. This melting, this is actual, this is, this is satellite photography. This is actually, this isn't, a, this isn't a simulation. This is from satellites that have basically documented the melting ice. Now, certain things stand out. First of all, you can see that the real thick ice is still just along the north of Canada, and it basically pours out here. But as soon as you can start imaging it that way, instead of this static view that we've often had, everyone's got the globes of the Arctic where you have the ice cap. Well, you start turning around and say, you know what, this ice, it's a dynamic, almost like a living creature. And you can see all the different dynamics that are driving it. There's a, there's a the over gyro here. You see that most of the ice is flushed out of here. People such as, as, uh, as um, I don't know if you get his first name, Barber, Canada's leading ice expert at the University of Manitoba believes that the multi ice, the thick stuff, this stuff here, will be gone by 2020. We'll have first-year ice reappearing, but the multi-year ice, the stuff that sank, sunk the Titanic, that's going to be gone by about 2020, and it basically flushes out of the system, it rotates here a few times, and it goes up there. With the new technologies, we can image that. I can tell you, when this type of imagery started showing up, the task of convincing some of my colleagues about the impacts of climate change, even people such as the infamous Barry Cooper, friends of science and so forth, who says climate change isn't occurring, has to acknowledge that the Arctic is transforming. So even the strongest opponents of climate change that's caused by humans say, yeah, there's climate change. And that's where everyone starts looking for sunspots and all the rest. Why? 
Seeing is believing. You can talk about the ice analogy, but you show this type of imagery, and leaders take notice. The Chinese take notice. The Indians take notice. We take notice. And so this has been an important way of understanding what's happening in the Arctic. When we start then trying to get a visual representation, now this is not art per se, but it is. Because basically what this is showing is where, where's the oil and gas? Well, we actually drill. Don't we have a drill? This is where we think it is. We've done seismic. We've put together studies. And so you can start to say, wow, there's quite a bit. Now, of course, this imagery is incomplete. You'll notice that there's nothing up here in terms of oil and gas. Well, it's not that there isn't anything there. It's that we don't know. Because of the ice cover, we haven't been able to do the seismic, to do the research that's up there. But, nevertheless, people look at this and say, you know what, this tells us a whole lot. It tells us, first of all, there's a lot of oil and gas. Second of all, if you want to say it's a cooperative narrative, you say, look, it's all within national boundaries. It's all within the 200 mile east end. The part that's going to be the open ocean, there's nothing there. There's nothing there because we don't know. That's the bottom line. But it sets an interesting tone to the narrative in this particular context. Now, this is another imagery that has really set the leadership of Flutter. And this is what people under the new United Nations Convention on the Law Sea can actually claim. When people start talking about race for resources, new territories, people are always saying, well, what does that actually mean? Well, it means under the new treaty that was negotiated from 73 to 82, countries already have the right to claim the resources within the dark colors. All of these are already claimed. Now, they're not claimed as land. You still have to do such things as let navigation go through. This type of art allows us to have a visual understanding. Now, recognize this is a flat representation. This is not truly what it looks like. Because you need to have a globe to understand what it looks like. But it still provides us with an understanding because then it says, oh, here's the part that we think that we are going to see people claiming. Now, what that is, a lawyer will say, that's nothing to do with art. That's everything to do with Article 76.2, blah, 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 that says you've got the sovereign right over the soil and subsoil. But I can assure you, when Durham University came out with this, First and foremost, I was so jealous when they did it because we were talking about doing it and we never got our act together. But basically, you can't find a place that talks about the new Arctic security that doesn't have that graphic on. You know, it is a piece of art. Now, is it technically correct? Well, technically, the Americans would say, no, it's wrong because it's showing this is internal waters. It's not an international street. So they haven't colored it right. Canada would say, oh, you got you colored it perfectly, that's it. <laughs> but once again, it's how you describe it. You know, it's a visualization. It has been very powerful for telling us. When you hear people talking about actually having disputes with the Russians, what we are talking about is the zone here. Because technically speaking, by the time you draw all your boundaries and everything and do your seismic work, there's probably going to be an overlap with the Russians, Danes, and Canadians here, maybe. Stay tuned. We have to make the announcement by 2013. But once again, how many people are actually going to get there? How many people can say, yeah, I've sailed up to the North Pole, seen what it looks like. It's just going to look white. It's going to look like water. You're not going to see anything. But this type of visualization is the stuff that's really fired people up. 
and I would submit is a new form of art. Here's another new form of art. The graphic representation of the new type of resources going in. There's several sub-themes here. First and foremost, notice who's building this. It's Koreans. You want to build a commercial ice-capable vessel, you go to the South Koreans. You don't go to the Finns. You don't go to the Canadians. You don't go to the Americans. You want to have it built cheap. You want to have it built good. It's the Koreans. The Koreans figured out in 1999 that the Arctic was opening up and there'd be resource possibilities. So they went off on spec and started designing vessels that were ice-capable, that could carry both liquefied natural gas and oil. The oil tankers are already in existence. They're operating already. They're more expensive, but they work. This is still on the drawing boards, but once again, you start getting very interesting visualizations in terms of what the new Arctic is probably going to look like. So, if we return back to Canada, we see basically that the North shapes our history, shapes our culture, our psyche, and sense of identity. But we've been spoiled up until recently. And that is because climate and geography has meant that others could not come. We could claim it's ours, but we never really had to worry. We had two, two sort of sovereignty challenges, both by our best friend, and one of them really wasn't a sovereignty challenge. One was a misunderstanding. In 1969, the Manhattan went through without asking permission. In 1985, the North, North, the North, uh, North Sea went through. I just like that one. I can't believe it. I did my thesis on it, and I'm blanking out on the name of this yet. You can tell I'm staying on too late marking papers right now. Anyway, it was an American icebreaker in 85 that went through. We have a romantic view of the North in the South, but climate and geography have been our gates, but these are disappearing now. So when we have traditionally thought about the Arctic, you know, for example, we have some interesting visualization. No people there, of course. We also have the sort of the, the way that the Europeans came in and were struggling to find the Northwest Passage. That's another major theme we find in terms of how we have seen our North out of a struggle. And, of course, it really pushed at it. We also see the, image, the images of the type of art that comes from the Northern Indigenous peoples. This, this carvings and that. But if we really want to start thinking about the imagery that sets the North apart from, say, Antarctica, it's, of course, the existence of the people. Now, once again, this is something I contend. The Europeans, the Chinese, the Indians are still coming to terms with. People that have it as their homeland. But that is part of the imaging that we have in terms of how we understand it. Now, once again, hunting for seal. We look at that in Canada and say, okay, that is an important traditional way of life. He's going off to go support for his family. In Europe, the imagery is how dare they go and slaughter a cute-looking little white seal. And as such, the animal rights movements within Europe have been successful under the type of imagery that's put forward by Bridget Bardot and by Paul McCartney, where the Europeans have imposed a ban on Canadian seal products. Basically destroyed an entire industry that the Inuit were setting up. What's interesting, of course, the Inuit, Mary Simon, their various leaders will say, well, we would take you serious if you actually imposed at the same time a similar ban on foie gras. 
Because her contention is always, look, this is a traditional way of hunting. We have never threatened the population. But if you look at the condition that geese are kept for foie gras in France, it, of course, is a travesty in terms of, human, of uh, animal rights. And so her argument is that the imagery is that we have not been able to properly counter the European imagery of the little seal cup. And so once again, without taking necessarily size on this, you can start to see the way that how we visualize it, how we see it, is at the heart of many of the major battles that we see shaping up. Now, once again, another interesting graphic. When we talk about the Arctic, under threat, those of us who say, look, there's issues to be concerned, you put up a map and say, well, where are the disputes? We, of course, have a boundary dispute here. We have a boundary dispute through the Northwest Passage. We have a land territory dispute with the Danes here. And we'll probably have a territorial dispute here. That's how the imagery tells us. We've got a lot of conflict coming. Of course, those that say no, we've got cooperation coming, will point out, you know, there's a whole bunch of disputes here, here, and here. And you know what? We survived them. But it's the manner in which we visualize that we have an image. So, what are the images and what are driving the issues of cooperation? Well, we have political leaders saying things are good. We're getting along. We see the popular expressions when the president of Russia gets together with the American president or prime minister and says everything's hunky-dory. We do see the creation of the Arctic Council, but the Arctic Council has kind of failed because it's never really done good in getting images out. We've seen a successful application of UNCLOS, but we've seen the way that the way that you draw boundaries is important. The Norwegians and Russians have had important boundary settlements, and there's been an Arctic Council agreement for search and rescue. But if we start looking for images of competition, we see a Russia growing much more assertive, particularly with the changing of administration from the Yeltsin administration to the Putin and Law Putin administration. We see the Russians realizing that petrodollars is what's saving their economy. They know they need to be driving, and they know that the North and the Caucasus are the two areas of growth. The United States does not want to be in the Arctic, but is realizing that it has to be. And we're seeing this in terms of some of its statements. <coughs> Norway. Norway has completely refocused on the North. And they continue to have a growing concern with Russia. Denmark is realizing that the potential of an independent Greenland may become realistic. In 2009, they entered into an agreement with the Greenlanders where they said, look, if you can find enough money somewhere and you can support yourself without our assistance, we will change you from home rule to a completely independent state. When they said that, they thought that they knew all the resources. Well, a year after that, a Scottish company, Cairns, Cairns is the oil company. It's a small little independent found the largest field in India. India's largest oil deposit was completely looked over by all the majors. Cairns said, no, we think, we think that there's something there. They went in and found it. Well, in 2010, they came out and said, you know what? The Davis Strait. We think that you have the same type of oil deposits indicators as what we've seen off the coast of the north slope of Alaska. At its peak, the North Slope is providing 10% of American oil. Cairns thinks that there may be similar amounts in the Davis Strait. Now, if they find even a percentage of that, Greenland gets independence. 
First, they're 90% Inuit. So we've got an interesting development. We have an issue in terms of what that means for NATO. We have an issue of what it means for NORAD. We have an issue of what it means for Canada relations with a brand new neighbor. And so all of a sudden, this is getting very interesting. But Greenland faces today the same type of social problems with men, much of its youth as we do in Canada. There's high unemployment. But what's interesting is that the Inuit of Greenland are clear. They want oil, and they want oil as fast as they can because they see that as their future. And they are increasingly butting heads with the British, which is interesting because you get representatives of the British saying, you know, Greenland, don't develop this because we don't have the ability to clean up. But by the way, we're still going to go ahead with the North, uh, with the, the, the North Sea's uh, oil development that they're proceeding. Hypocrisy. We're talking international relations, so hypocrisy doesn't matter. Iceland had an economic meltdown in 2008. They made the misfortune of placing almost their entire banking system with the Lehman Brothers. You'll recall in 2008, it was the Lehman Brothers that basically caused the near collapse of the American economy. Well, they went into complete bankruptcy as a country. They are feeling very, very ignored because Western Europe, North America, basically turned their backs. When they came and said, okay, this was an American problem, can you come and give us assistance? And we said, you know, <laughs> we've got other issues we have to deal with. What's interesting is the country that said, Iceland will help you. It's China. China has developed a very strong economic interest in Iceland. They recently tried to buy some very, very strategically located property to build a golf course. Once again, that was the official reason that they said they wanted to buy this to build a golf course in Iceland. You know, what they actually wanted, who knows. Finland and Sweden, the two so-called neutrals or semi-neutrals, Finland is moving and probably my estimate is that they're going to formally make an admission, a request to join NATO in the next five years. And once again, the Russians have very long memories. Finland, for those of you who like your history, will recall is the only country that stopped the Russians slash Soviets cold in the, in the Arctic War of 1940. They were not ultimately conquered by the Soviets. They were the only ones that were fighting against the Soviets that did not succumb to a Soviet counteroffensive in 1944-45. Finland and NATO, that is going to be interesting. And Sweden, very recently, has also started talking about joining NATO. In Canada, well, we're re-examining our Arctic capabilities, and we also have a renewed assertiveness. Now, I'm not going to waste your time, because if you're interested in this, I can, we've got a web page, we've got reports coming out on it, but the policy statements are clear. Everybody talks cooperation first and foremost, and then says, oh, by the way, we will defend national interests. Full stop. And so we're getting a very change in the narrative. Prior to 2008, everyone said, we're going to cooperate, period, but by the way, not spend any money. Now we're hearing, well, we'll spend money, but we'll also defend ourselves. And, once again, the list of where the money is actually going is substantial. It's in the billions. And these are programs that are going on even in the face of the 2008 economic crisis that we find ourselves in. Now, some of them have been slowed down. For both Canada and Norway, we've been either postponing or putting off the F-35 decision, so have the Danes. But the Norwegians have built an Aegis-capable class of frigates. 
The Russians see this as an effort of Norway to join with the United States to have a maritime-based anti-ballistic system. And you have to ask the question, why would you spend so much money on this? Denmark, United States, everybody is spending billions of dollars on new combat capability in the Arctic. Everybody is also doing the exercises. We see this with the Russians, the Americans, Norwegians, Canadians, and Finns. Everybody had stopped at the end of the Cold War. We were the first to start up again in 2002, very small, only about 200 troops back in 2002. But everybody is now into it big time. Everyone's doing it. Very large-scale exercises. And you can start seeing, if you individually dissect, where the Russians are putting most of their money is their nuclear deterrent. They're rebuilding their submarine fleet. Why? That's where their nuclear deterrent is based. They have two places they can place the subs, either in the Pacific or in Murmansk. The problem with the Pacific is that you get very deep water and it makes it very easy for the Americans to follow their subs. So in other words, if you're coming out of Aldabaska, their subs are pretty detectable from there. So the Russians know that. And so the Russians will be placing them up in Murmansk. As the Russians place more subs there, guess what? The Americans are placing more subs again. And so we're getting back into a bit of a resumption of what happened during the Cold War. Not to the same scale, but clearly we're seeing the indications. In 2007, the Russians also announced to the world that they were resuming their fully armed Barmel patrols of the Arctic. They had stopped at the end of the Cold War, but resumed in 2007. We thought it was a publicity stunt. They've maintained it. They do about between 1 to 150 per year. They fly right up to the international airspace of North America. They don't go into our airspace, but up to it. And they're carrying live munitions when they come. In some instances, live munitions mean nuclear weapons. And, you, you know, they've been asked, why are you doing this? And they said, look, it's international airspace. We're doing it because we can. And that is their official response. But you have to ask, why would you want to do that? We don't do it with our bombers to them. We do have flights of fighters that go close to Russian airspace, but we don't send nuclear-armed bombers into any area near them. American interest, once again, the Americans make it clear. It's security. And you can go through, and as I said, I'll give you, uh, I'll leave the presentation with, with, uh, with Jennifer so you can read it in more detail if you want to. But the Americans have also been coming back with their subs. Once again, we get back to this theme of imagery. The only way that a nuclear sub is going to be photographed in the Arctic is if the person who's brought it there wants it to be photographed. There's nobody else around. You surface at the ice, you are in the middle of the ocean, you're not near any land base, there is no other activity going on. And so what's interesting is to watch the Americans come up with these pictures. American submariners are extremely secretive. They don't post the pictures unless there's a reason. What's important to note here is this particular class of submarine, the Virginia, it's a brand new sub, were not supposed to be ice capable. Back at the end of the Cold War, the American Congress went to the Navy and said, you've got to save money. You can't build these subs that are made to sink Soviet subs, because there are no Soviet subs. And the Navy said, okay, we'll stop building what was called the Sea Wolves. The Sea Wolves were going to be the ones that they're going to have. They're going to cost about $2.2 billion each. So the U.S. Navy said, you know what, we'll reduce it down to about $1.2 And we'll do it three ways. New construction standards, 
We won't carry as many weapons, and they won't be Arctic capable, because we don't have to go fight the Soviets in the Arctic anymore. All of a sudden, 209, this is uh, the USS Texas. 209, a picture of the Texas, in very thick ice, shows up. What messaging is the Americans give? Well, you go back to the last slide of the Russians, and the messaging is clear. The American Navy is still sending its attack subs, and the newest class is still able to go. Now, a couple other imageries that we want to see. Is, of course, Delta Junction. Seems like a, you know, close to the Yukon border. Most people aren't even aware it exists. The Americans have one of two functioning ABM sites there. The other one is down in California. If you're defending against a North Korean site, you want to place it there. Now, once again, we may see the Arctic is melting. It's not melting. The reality is, when you talk about conflict in the Korean Peninsula, it inevitably involves the Arctic. Why? It's where the Americans have their systems. Now, also, just for Canadian context, it's interesting, in Canada, we tied ourselves in dots. The Americans wanted us to say that we, we thought the, uh, the anti-ballistic missile system was good. Martin seemed to be going that way. and ultimately said, no, it wasn't. But if you look at the actual physical location of Delta Junction, the Americans are protecting us. We're in it whether or not we want to be, which is, once again, an interesting imagery because we try not to let photographs of that show up. But the bottom line is, as the Americans will tell you under NORAD, the Koreans launch, and they're not sure if it's going to hit Seattle or Vancouver. They're going to be engaging the missile. So we're part of the missile defense, whether or not we say we are. Norwegians, once again, we can go through in terms of what they have. But it's quite impressive when you look at what they're building. This is the new frigates that are Aegis capable. Why you would want to put an Aegis system on? Only if you're going to be fighting in the most intense aerospace environment. The only other countries that have an Aegis system are Japan and South Korea. Guess who their neighbor is? North Korea. If you think you're going to be fighting someone that's got good missile technology, you want Aegis. So you have to say, well, why would the Norwegians spend an extra, I don't know, five, six billion putting that in? Unless they didn't think that there was a reason. There, this is, incidentally, on the other ship, once again, we see the power of imagery. This is a Coast Guard vessel, not a warship, a Coast Guard. You can see that it's the appearance, it carries a gun. What you don't see is that internal to this is a lock and load combat system. They can load on through box technology, container technology, missiles, torpedoes, and missiles that basically go anti-ship and anti-air. So they can turn a Coast Guard vessel into a warship in a relatively short period of time. Now, Finland, Sweden, I've already told you, going closer. They just finished having one of the other British carriers up in their waters up until the point of time in which the tug actually uh, rammed their aircraft carrier, so they ended up having to come back a little bit earlier. That was a bit of a mishap. They didn't want happening. But the reality is that we're seeing the British or the NATO countries showing up in Russia, Russia very close to Russian waters. Now, you want to see an image, and you want to see some interesting sort of dynamics this is a Mistrial. This is an amphibious assault vessel that the French have been building, about 22,000 tons, carries helicopters, and can carry up to 2,000 Marines. The Russians are buying four of them. 
Therefore, offensive purposes. You get one of those if you want to land troops, land marines somewhere. And so the question is, well, why do the Russians need them? Well, you ask any of the officials from Latvia, Estonia, they'll tell you why the Russians want it. They're saying the Russians are returning to bad old habits. Sweden, neutral, nice Sweden, took it so serious that the defense minister, when the Russians said that they have signed a deal with the French, the, Norwegian, the Swedish defense minister publicly said, well, now we're going to have to go out and revisit our defense policy to give us anti-ship missiles to take this out in the event of a conflict. That's the Swedes talking in that context. That's a rhetoric of an arms race. Now, will the Swedes do it? Stay tuned on that particular context. China. This is actually a Ukrainian freighter that the Chinese have retrofitted into the world's largest Arctic research vessel. Now, is she a true icebreaker? Probably not. But the Chinese take her into pretty thick ice. They showed up at Tartyukka in 1999. For those of you with good memories, you remember 99 was the year that the, that the uh, illegal Chinese immigrants showed up on the West Coast. There about five vessels made into Canadian waters. When, when the snow dragon, the Zulong, showed up at Tartyukka, our first thought was, of course, these were some very well-outfitted illegal immigrants. <laughs> now, the Chinese... At this point, still trying to play other rules. They tried to tell our embassy, and our embassy forgot to tell Ottawa that they were coming. So when they actually showed up in Taktiyaptak, there was no one there to greet them. It was only a day later that we got officials up there to actually check the ship. Now, there were Chinese diplomats that had actually rented a car from Vancouver and drove all the way up to meet them. And there's some rumors that not all the Chinese that got off the boat actually got back on. We don't know. Here is the Polar Research Institute of China. This is probably bigger than the University of Lethbridge. It is being built in the port of Shanghai, which is now the world's largest container port. And the Chinese mean business. They're pouring money into their infrastructure capability being in the Arctic. What does that mean into the future? Stay tuned. The French... The French have told the world through a Ministry of Defense statement that, in fact, all their submarines now have to go into the Arctic, that they're changing a mountain infantry brigade for Arctic operations. All of its air force has to have training in northern Europe, and all surface naval units have to carry out naval Arctic deployments. You've got to ask the question, why? These are expensive operations, transformations. Once again, we get into the imagery of an Arctic that's going to be increasingly competitive. And so what is Canada doing? Well, once again, most of us are fairly familiar. They started operations in 202. We're going to be building six to eight Arctic offshore patrol vessels, some form of refueling facility in Atlantic. We are building the Resolute Training Program, etc. And we've been saying pretty decisively, you can actually go back to the Martin government to find the first definitive statements. Martin was very clear. Harper's following. What's interesting is that Harper, to a certain degree, the northern strategy, half the problem was renaming it. Harper didn't want it to be representative of what Martin had actually done when they renamed it. 
But there is actual bipartisan agreement on this, even though that they bend over backwards to say there's not. Imagery. Once again, we see the power of imagery. Here we have a Canadian frigate coming up to the north. The first time ever a Canadian submarine went as far as north as it ever did. We see the S-18, and we see the Coast Guard. Major effort to do that. Could only do that in the summer months. But the Canadian government made sure that everybody got a picture. Any of us that were, in fact, doing Arctic research, we literally got this picture mailed to us. So people like myself, Whitney Lockenborough, Michael Myers, all the rest, you know, made sure that that picture was sent to us. Well, once again, was it there? Yes, it's, you know, all that's up just outside of the Kellowitz. But you can see the type of messaging that's going on and what that's saying to presumably the world and Canada. And just so that, once again, we understand imageries. The distances from here to here, if we continued over to London, are actually shorter to go from St. John's to London than it is to go from St. John's to Manasivic. So once again, you understand some of the difficulties that we're going to be facing as we try to get to the Arctic. Here's a picture of uh, the Arctic offshore patrol vessel. Point of comparison, compare that to the Norwegian gun. In this case, the Norwegian gun is bigger than ours. <laughs> but it actually goes beyond that. It's, it's, it's the issue, the fact that we have no combat capability within it, unlike what the Norwegians are doing. We don't have Russia as a neighbor, and one can see the type of impact that that has. RadarSat is a satellite system the Americans said could not be done. We actually built it. It was made for ice research, but we use it for ship detection, surface ship detection now. Very, very nice piece of kit. But once again, the type of imagery that presents is a type of imagery we never thought it could exist. It can take pictures in the dark and in storms. It's a, it's a, it's an X, not an X-ray, but a radar form of imagery. And once again, a different way of appreciating and thinking about art. In northern exercises, we're doing a lot. And so ultimately, ultimately, what is this image? What is this picture I'm trying to paint for you? Well, there's no question whatsoever that the circumpolar states are calling for cooperation. We know that. But you start looking at what they're actually doing. Where are they putting the combat capabilities? Where are they putting scarce dollars? You have to say, why is this happening? Well, once again... The reason why is pretty obvious. We see this as a new frontier we need to be concerned about. Or at least this is what I think the thinking is in each of the national capitals. And so at the very end, the geopolitical concerns ended at the Cold War, but new concerns are arising as we have an imagery of the Arctic becoming more accessible. The issues will be maritime and aerospace because the Arctic is basically an ocean. There's not going to be an Arctic-only conflict. No one's going to go to war over the extended continental shelf. That's, that's for sure. And besides, the cost just simply wouldn't be worth it. But it's going to come from other places. It's going to come as the Korean Peninsula goes to war. The Arctic gets involved. If Russia invades Georgia again, or does the intervention, or whatever you want to call it, whatever normative word you want to use, expectations are Finland and Sweden will seek membership of NATO. When that happens, the Russians will then respond to that. And so we can start to see that it's not about conflict in the Arctic, but that the Arctic is becoming an ocean like any other. 
And so Arctic states may pretend hard, that hard security is no longer relevant. But if you actually start tracking the dollars, if you look at where people are actually putting their monies, a different type of a picture, a different type of imagery comes in. And so finally, conclusion. What does Canada need to do? Well, I would argue that the type of imagery that we are seeing really comes down to two different metaphors. There are those, of course, that say Canada needs to remain to be a cuddly, cute, little seal. Uh, if I was good with graphics, I'd put on a boy, a boy scout cap on them or something along that. So the idea of human security, the idea of being there and being somewhat more passive. The other imagery that's coming forward, though, is, of course, one of a much more aggressive predator. And this is something I dare say that the type of imagery that we as Canadians are not really used to that. And yet, as we go through what Canada's doing, what we see other countries doing, we see the type of imagery, the mapping, the satellite imagery, the division of boundaries. This is all reshaping how we think about it. In Canada, we still include in our imagery, imaging the Inuit, which have to be a central part. But you look at the imaging that everyone else is doing, you're not going to see it. This is why you see the Europeans saying, well, we need a treaty in the Arctic, like the Antarctic region, where there are no people. Of course, the problem always is, there are people. There are a lot of people. And if you get to the Russian side, the Russians have a much larger indigenous population in the north, but their rights are minuscule compared to what Canada has. They were basically displaced when, of course, Stalin was bringing people up to Siberia. They were pushed out and basically taken away. Now, you don't see any imaging of them, but in terms of numbers, the, no, the, the Russian indigenous populations are about ten times the size of what the combined Inuit populations are of Greenland, Canada, and the United States. But, once again, out of sight, out of mind. So, ultimately, in conclusion, how we think about the Arctic, how we look at the Arctic, how we express the Arctic, is driving reaction, which then, of course, creates a whole different set of imaging. Because so much is changing, because we have so much transformation, the new technologies, the new approaches, what does it actually mean? And this is where I dare say that trying to look at the type of imaging that we have, the type of pictures, the type of art that we now have in terms of this newly emerging Arctic, that is telling. It's telling in terms of our technology, but it's also telling in the way that we imagine new space. And that is precisely what's happening in the Arctic. The problem is that there are such substantial interests, Inuit, oil, gas, security, cultural, that we have a complexity and an a, a interface that is incredibly difficult to come. So ultimately, how will this all spill out? I don't know. Makes it interesting as an academic. Makes it scary as a Canadian. Thank you very much. So I'm just going to take a quick moment to thank our co-sponsors, the University of Lethbridge and SACPA. And uh, we're, Rob's um, going to take some questions, if anyone has any. And so if anyone would like to can just stand up and speak moderately loudly. Does anyone have any questions yet? Actually, I do have a, I have a question. Yes, sir. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in, in your views. I know that you say you don't know, but, but what do you think um, 
the kind of the, the effect that uh, indigenous populations are going to see with a ramped up security presence in, in the north? Well, I think the first thing is we need to recognize that when we talk about the need to include it, the need to include indigenous concerns, that is almost entirely a Canadian focus. Now, once again, we beat ourselves up, and I think on certain points we need to beat ourselves up in certain relationships between Aboriginals and the southern populations. But we're the only ones really talking about this discourse. But what you are going to be seeing is, first and foremost, amongst the indigenous peoples themselves, there's a huge divide in terms of what the future looks like. You talk to the Nelly Cormier, who say, you can't get the oil and gas up there fast enough. Our young are basically destroying themselves, and if we do not get some form of exploitation of our resources, they are going to disintegrate. And Nelly will go out in public and say it. You can get Mary Simon saying the exact opposite, saying, no, we don't want the whole problem of our youth is related to this promise of new resource capability. And so I think in Canada, what we are going to see is, first of all, this debate increasing in intensity. We're already seeing it when we start talking about the various pipelines being put forward. We saw this with the Mackenzie Valley. The Mackenzie Valley pipeline is not going to go forward now. The economic arguments for it because of shale gas have been destroyed. But what's interesting is you get many of the indigenous communities coming forward and saying, God damn it, now we are going to be dependent on diesel. Do you know what diesel does to the environment? Do you know what that does for safety factors? And they say, we were hoping that the pipeline, we could feed off of it and get it like Southern Canadians. People say, whoa, 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 this is an indigenous argument. If you go talk to the community leaders, especially with those that have land claim settlements, they'll say, yes, we wanted, we needed that, we needed that gas as an environmentally friendly way of heating our houses in a safer way. And so I think what we're going to be seeing is a diversity of discussions that are going to take Southern Canadians back. Everybody is still thinking in almost Berger time periods in the South. And we're going to have to recognize that there are real major divisions amongst the indigenous, and as we would, I think as a mature society, we would expect to see, but we're not used to that yet. And that's the first thing. The second thing is what happens to the outside factors where crises may come. If the, say for example, the Greenlanders start drilling this summer, like they say they're going to, and there's a major blowout, and there's damage along the Canadian coast, because there will be, what does that then do to the discussion debate? Or what happens if we see the suicide rates going up to the degree that the existing social structure can't support it and people become aware of that? And so we've got a complexity with that that is really going to be changing things quite drastically. And I think that that's the part, that's the part of the puzzle we simply don't understand yet. And that's the part, I think, in the next two, three years we're going to have to come to terms with something a lot more, uh, a lot quicker than what we've been dealing with. Instead of the stereotypes of, well, the Aboriginals have to be on the same side as the environmentalists. The, incidentally, the, most of the Aboriginal groups strongly dislike most of, the, uh, most of the green groups. You talk to Mary Simon, ask her opinion on Greenpeace, and she'll say, you know, don't, don't let them come near our land. They don't understand. They're, they're interfering. You know, a little bit less hostile towards groups such as WWF and some that have tried to understand. There's a complexity here that I don't think we get. There's another issue would be shipping lanes. There could be a huge uh, amount yeah. of traffic going through there. 
that would uh, certainly be uh, something to police or whatever you want to call it. Because most of it would be within Canadian waters, would it not? Maybe. And this is part of the, the complexity. Up until about 207, everybody thought, well, as the ice melts, the Northwest Passage is going to be the route that everyone's going to take. The problem is, is that the, there, are certain there are certain regions of the Northwest Passage that are very shallow, very dangerous for vessels. So in other words, if you're a large vessel, you may not want to go. You have the ongoing issue that Canada, of course, has a sovereignty issue with the United States, which creates political uncertainty. And so there are some, there was a major Arctic Council study, and there are some, such as Lawson Brigham, he used to be a U.S. Uh, icebreaker captain who led the study, but the study was by all eight Arctic states. The scientific consensus that starts developing in 208 is that the top of the Arctic is going to melt before the Northwest Passage. In other words, the Northwest Passage is going to still trap ice which is going to, you know, you're going to have two, three weeks of open passage, but then it's going to start refreezing just because of the, the nature of the physics of it, is that you're going to get the ice coming back, whereas if you go right to the top of the, of the, uh, of the Arctic, that's going to open and clear. And so that what most people are starting to think is that the if shipping does increase largely, it's going to go over the top of the, the Northwest or over the North Pole rather than through the Northwest Passage. But it's speculation. Four years ago, nobody thought that there was an issue with large cruise liners coming into Arctic waters. Greenland would get maybe two or three large. Alaska would have a medium to medium-small trade. Well, 208, all of a sudden, Carnival and all these other companies discover that people want to go up along the coast of Greenland. And so they went from about two up to now they get about 250 various vessels. And these guys don't know what they're doing. Because there's pictures, there's imagery, you can just go to YouTube and you'll see some of these captains taking their vessel between icebergs. And you're going, do you not pay attention to what happened to the Titanic? Uh, because 90% of the iceberg's mass is underwater. And you're not seeing it. And you see these pictures of these guys that want to get their paying customers closer to the ice. Well, you know, it, it's... They're it, not even Italians. Well... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they might be. Um, but, I mean, they're doing dumb things like that. And, I mean, you know, it's, if a, a disaster of what happened in Italy happens in off of Greenland, those people, you know, you're not talking 30 casualties, you're talking 3,000 casualties. And so there, there, there's a real concern. But the bottom, where I'm going with all this so we don't know. We don't understand it. We know that there's going to be more shipping. We know that, you know, this commercial is going to be built by the Koreans. We know that things can change very rapidly, and we know that there's arguments about who's controlling what. Even though at one of the inquiries after Titanic sunk, was that any cruise vessel that's dealing up in the Arctic or near Arctic waters should actually have covered in heated lifeboats. This comes out of the inquiry. It's the, um, I forget the name of the inquiry. Anyway, it comes out after, after Titanic goes down. That's 1912. We're in 2012, and do you know that the International Maritime Organization still hasn't gotten around to making that a requirement? And so you can start to see some of the issues that we're facing in terms of the imagery and the regulatory issues that surround it, and we've got problems coming. Uh, we've got opportunities, but in terms of shipping, we don't know where it's going. 
Yes. Um, Stephen Harper made a point because he was Prime Minister of always making a trip to the North every year. Yep. And then increasing, um, how this line just had the name, I don't remember what it's called, but it was like a patrol group. Yeah, the Arctic Offshore Patrol. Oh, the Rangers. The Rangers. Yes. Is part of Canada's claim to, to some of that disputed land based on the fact that there are people there so often? Is that part of the... I mean, does, and does that hold any water in, in, in an international agreement that such that the Russians may start to use that as well? Yeah. They have more people. Yeah. Well, the Russians actually are interesting, just to sort of take that part of it. The Russians don't care what anyone else says. They say, we want you to come into the Arctic if you're going to do it our way, full stop. If you don't, here's our frigate that's going to meet you. And that's how they've responded. They said that we want you in. These are our standards. And what's interesting is the Americans and the Europeans have been relatively quiet on that one. It's Canada that they must, whenever we say that we're, we are going to do something similar, is the ones that they have the most. Now, technically speaking, all of our issues, with the exception of Hans Island, is about maritime control. So we can put all the rangers that we want on the land, and it's an important security enhancement. I mean, having the type of traditional knowledge that the rangers provide is, is almost immeasurable. And so they're important security instruments. They are not important. In fact, they're not even relevant as sovereignty instruments. I mean, now, we're using them on the land. We're not using them on the water. We're not saying this gives us internal control. We're not using the rangers to stop people from coming into the maritime. No, and where they, when we do send them out on the water, we are sending some. We keep them away from the disputed zones. So we've had the opportunity to actually send ranger uh, uh, motorboats into the Beaufort Sea, and we've always been careful because we don't want to aggravate the Americans. So all that stuff we don't do. That is for security and symbolism. It is not for sovereignty, even though we call it sovereignty. Sovereignty is all about when we sit there and say, you know what, we have certain standards for shipping, and we don't care if the IMO is catching up to us or not. This is what you have to do. And when Stephen Harper turns around and makes Nordreg, which is a reporting system for the Northwest Passage, when he says, we're going to make it mandatory, you have to report into us, something that no conservative or liberal government had done before, that is much more that is much more important for protection of our sovereignty than any of these. Those others, the other steps, those are security. They are basically giving us the means of operating on the land for future developments, but clearly within sovereign Canadian territory. Sorry, I jumped over. I didn't miss no, you no, that. Okay. I just have a couple thoughts. Um, one was something you, you, you talked about this visualization of data as about international waters. That's the part that anyone can come in and treat like any of the other ocean states. So, so if the ice melts, and if fish stock do move up as many of the scientists think they're going to happen, the Chinese, the Korean, the Japanese fishing fleets have every right to come up and fish that. And so you can see what that means for the future. 
they also have the right under UNCLOS to come there and mine resources if there are resources. We have no idea what's in the, in the, in the sea bottom at those points. But the other countries have the right. That's called the common heritage of mankind. They have the right to come in. I'm following certain rules, but they have the right to come in stake a claim. The big argument right now is, is there anything there for them to stake? In other words, is, is that area that is going to be rich in resources? The current thinking is that it's not, but stay tuned for another couple of days and it could change. Uh, but that those white zones are international space. And how, and how stable are these? Like I've heard a lot of these zones are pretty debatable, period. Anyway, yeah. You have to do the science, and that's what everyone is doing right now. I'll try to figure it out. Yeah, we're trying to, you're using a series of systems of, of what we thought was the, was the continental shelf in 1975. Because the convention, that part of the treaty, Article 76, was written in 75. And it represented state of the knowledge at that point in time. We now know that it's wrong at certain points, but you still have to apply that, because that's the international treaty. And so you've got this interesting thing that you're telling scientists, go out and measure it this way. And the scientists are saying, well, that's not going to tell us a continental shell. And we say, okay, we know that. Don't worry. This is how you have to go out and measure it. So you're measuring for certain indicators, slope, soil density, and other factors. And that's what everyone is doing. Everyone's spending um, hundreds of millions of dollars to do it right now. You have a time limit to make the submission. A scientific committee reviews it and says your science is right or wrong. And then, as nation states, you have to negotiate any overlap. And that's how the process will work. We have to make our submission under the terms of the treaty next year, 2013. So that's the year that you'll see Canada either saying, yes, we have an overlap with the Russians, or we just have gone up to the, up to the North Pole. And we don't know where that's going because we keep all that information right now secret. The only country that publicly releases its raw data is the United States. And there's an irony because the United States is the only country that hasn't ratified the, the law of the treaty the law of the sea treaty. So everyone else who's ratified and playing by the rules keeps it secret. The United States has it ratified for political reasons and they release the, the data. They're very open. Are there any other questions or comments? Well, um, I don't even know how to put together a question. Mm -hmm. the, the things that I'm thinking about, though, are the F-35. Yep. And how the purchase of those and all the controversy right now with that, how related is that to the Arctic and yeah. all these other countries investing so much in The F-35 is much more related to other security requirements for Canada. There's going to be probably something. The Russians are going to be building new bombers. We are going to need a means of being able to respond to them. Uh, but that's not going to be the bulk of what the F-35 is going to be called upon. The F-35s really are being designed to provide an air umbrella for Canadian deployments overseas in an increasingly dangerous surface-to-air missile environment. What's happening basically real wide is the Americans, British, and French are drastically reducing the number of fighters that they'll have into the future. And so what Canada is going to be faced in the future is if we want to continue to be one of the most militarily active countries in the world, which we've been since the Boer War, basically, in terms of overseas deployments, if we want to continue doing that, we are going to be increasingly entering environments that are going to be very dangerous 
where we can't rely on allies. So basically, if you don't have the F-35, because there's really nothing else, it's, it's a question, do we continue with our standard foreign and defense policy, or do we start pulling back? Because it's going to become too dangerous to, to, to rely on our allies, say, 20 years from now. We're not talking next year. We're not talking 10 years. We're talking in 2030, because these aircraft will be around for about 30 to 40 years. That's how long we're going to have them for. And that's the type of environment. So the type of situation <coughs> where you've got a collapsing Pakistan, and we say, we just can't go in there because there's too many surface-to-air missiles, and they're going to kill any Canadians that we try to involve. So let the Indians and Pakistanis go at it, uh, or something along the lines. And that's the type of thing that the F-35 is truly being designed for. Now, will the Chinese develop a long-range bomber that could reach the Arctic? Why would they want to? They, they, they come across the Pacific if they wanted to. Uh, would the Russians become much more assertive aggressive? Well, that's possible. And so it's the Russian equation that the F-35 comes in. But most thinking is it's much more related to peacekeeping, peacemaking, peace support, and that type of future 20, 30 years from now. And that's really where the discussion on if we need an F-35 really centers. This one sort of something that... I can't help but notice that like, it seems like it's a little unbalanced already with uh, Russia. Um, it seems like they have a whole lot more than anybody else. And Completely. Like, like, other countries are, are coming down, and we're like, man, I don't know if we're going to do that politically. The Russians have made it clear. The Arctic, is, I mean, first and foremost, they have, there's four million people that live in the Arctic. Of that four million, three million live in Russia. And the million that are, are, are out of the rest of the country. Um, their future depends on the natural resources they are, uh, are going to develop from their, their northern reaches. Their strategic nuclear deterrent depends on the protection of Murmansk. Those two forces alone mean that they have to take the Arctic serious in a way that the rest of us have not had to. Now, what's going to happen, however, is as the Arctic melts and as we start seeing opportunities and involvement where we start catching up in terms of infrastructure and the others, that's where we then have to figure out how do we situate ourselves to the Russians. And the big debate, for example, in NATO is, you know, do we want to keep the Russian bear sleeping or do we want to prepare for a more aggressive bear? What's the better way of proceeding? The Italians and French and Germans say, well, we don't want to do too much to aggravate them. You know, don't force them back into bad habits. The Baltic states, the Norwegians are increasingly saying, but the Norwegians don't say this publicly, they say it privately. We know this from WikiLeaks. We'll say, look, the Russian bear is a Russian bear. You know, we have to be prepared for it. And so that we've got a debate within NATO right now in terms of how we understand it. And it really depends on, you know, if I can be crude, depends on how much energy you need to buy from them. The countries that need to rely on the Russians a lot for energy are the ones saying, we've got to be super nice to them. The ones that don't depend so much are the saying, you know, uh, you know we've got to start preparing for the future. And so the question is, if you prepare for military action against the Russians, do you create a self-fulfilling prophecy, or are you responding to an inevitable future? And this is where the NATO debate right now is situated itself. Yeah, it's like my Cold War. Yeah, I grew up in the 70s, and we were trained to go underneath our chairs in yeah. school to, you know, be, a, be very afraid of the nuclear weapons that were coming. Yeah. And, and fought, you know, the threat of that. We were,
Well, or trying to figure out, I mean, remember, in, during the period of Yeltsin, and we didn't do it very well, was the question of how do you, how do you get the Soviets slash Russians to embrace to become a true liberal democracy? How do you make them one of us? I mean, we played with that a little bit under Yeltsin, and then got bored, and then basically let them do what they're doing, which meant then you had the rise of the mafia and the and the other things where it said, oh, see, the Russians are the Russians always. Well, is it is it that the Russians are the Russians always, or is it that the West just didn't have the staying power to say to them, look, you know, if we really are going to help you become Western, you know, Western democratic state, this is going to cost us. It's going to take time, and we have to be patient. Well, we weren't. And so we've gotten Putin as a direct result. And so, you know, is Putin uh, a problem or is he a creation of the West? And this is also one of the ongoing debates that we have right now about Russia, which also then goes into, well, how do we respond to Russia? Russia has to be in the North. Their future depends on the North, full stop. But what does it mean for the rest of us as we rediscover the North and new interests come forward? Can we embrace them and tie them in, as some argue, or do we have to prepare for this inevitability? And it really comes down. I mean, as a, a good political scientist, it's really, you know, I, I can't help but think, you know, it's, it's going to prove, you know, you sort of say, well, is it going to prove realism that we're all brutes at heart, you know, the Hobbesian view, or can we socially construct a new reality, you know, the much more the, the, the liberal, uh, liberal approach to it? And, yeah, I don't have an answer to that. Yeah. I remember my thought. Yeah, it would if it could catch it. Thank you so much for, for coming down, and I really appreciate your time. And, and we have a little thank you guest in, I apologize, in Washington.